Our Father David prayed in Psalm 139. He said, search me, O Lord, and try my heart. See if there be any anxious way in me. How often we look at the way that is just immediately ahead of us, and we get anxious because we can't see how it's going to work out. We can't see how it's going to sort out. Um, we find ourselves in a bit of a crisis. We find ourselves under some kind of physical threat in terms of our health, in terms of a uh, doctor's report, whatever, whatever it might be. Uh, there are different things that come into our lives and they make us anxious. Um, anxiety is a force. There is power in anxiety. Uh, there is power in worry. It can uh, overwhelm us. It can rob us of our peace and our equilibrium. It can uh, churn our thoughts so that we have trouble settling down and going to sleep and getting the rest that we need. Thank you that you understand us when we get anxious. You understand our thoughts from afar. You understand us, the fact of the matter is, you understand us better than we understand ourselves. There are times when we say to ourselves, why did I say that? We don't know why we said it. We, we know better than to have said it, but we went ahead and said it. Why did I do that? Same thing. Knew we shouldn't have done it, but we did it. We've done it before, said we'd never do it again, yet we did it. Uh, we often don't understand ourselves. You understand us. We are grateful for that. And you understand us, and you don't cast us away. You understand us, and because you are the great physician, you have a remedy for anxiety and for worry and fear. And Scripture is full of these remedies. Cast all your care upon him because he cares for you. Don't worry, Jesus said, about your life. Your Father knows that you need these things before you ask. And in the next line, you said that we are to ask. When you pray, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The more we know how great you are as our Father, the, the more artillery we will have to fight off anxiety and fear. Because our lives are in your care and in your keeping and in your hand. And you have made certain promises to us and you are the God who cannot lie.
Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. What things? Well, the things we're worried about there are daily needs there in Matthew 6. So, Father, most of us have got some anxiety that we're carrying in regard to our immediate future as we come here tonight. Help us with that. Help us to think clearly. Help us to put it in perspective. Help us not to be men of little faith, but of large faith. When we have small thoughts of you and your greatness and your power, then we have little faith. But when we remind ourselves about your sovereignty and your power and your wisdom and your care and your promises that you will never leave us or forsake us, nothing can separate us from you. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. Do not fear. I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you. I am your God. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my mighty right hand. The more we remember who you are, the quicker the anxiety dissipates. We've all got work to do. We've got important work to do. When the anxiety overwhelms us, our emotional energy goes to fighting the anxiety. But when we cast our care upon you, when we trust you for tomorrow, that's what you said, don't worry about tomorrow. You didn't say don't think about it. You said don't worry about it. Don't worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Whatever it is we're worried about and when it might occur, you're already there. You got it handled. We believe that. If that is true, we don't have to waste our energy worrying about it. We simply trust you and thank you that you're in charge of our immediate future and our long-term future. And you'll get us through day by day. That's the truth. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> you can go to uh, Texas A&M and get a degree in animal husbandry. Interesting major. Hard major. Animal husbandry is the, um, is the science of the breeding and care of animals. Um, that's one kind of husbandry. There's another kind. There is land husbandry. Land husbandry uh, is, is a man who um, has some land... And what he does is he stewards that land and he improves the land. 
uh, if, if the land has been overgrazed, there are things he can do to bring that grass back. If the land does not have sufficient rainfall, he can do some things to take whatever rainfall is there and dissipate that water more effectively. He can build some spreader dams, they used to call them. Um, he can do some things to stop erosion. A, a man who works the land and brings it back, he is practicing, and you can, you can look this up, he is practicing land husbandry. Uh, animal husbandry, land husbandry. There is crop husbandry. I have a friend who uh, farms 4,000 acres in Nebraska. And he runs different crops. He's got corn, flax, he's got barley, uh, wheat, and they rotate those crops. And there is harvest time, and you know, there are phases to those crops. There's planting time, and planting time, uh, you don't mess around with planting time. Because you gotta get, the, you gotta get that seed in, you got a certain amount of time, and if you don't get it in, in time, it's not gonna germinate. Uh, that's crop husbandry. Uh, that man takes care of his crops. The, the man who has um, livestock, animal husbandry, whether it's sheep or goats or cows or whatever it might be. He not only breeds, but he takes care of his animals. The man who has land, he takes care of the land. The, the root idea of husbandry is taking care. Isn't that interesting? No matter what kind of husbandry you're into, the main task of husbandry is taking care, is being a good steward, is improving it. If you go to Genesis chapter 2, and why would we go to Genesis chapter 2? Well, we'd go to Genesis chapter 2 because we've been looking uh, at, uh, we've been calling this series, I think, Men, Marriage, Family. Um, we have been looking at these concepts because these concepts have, in recent years and in our culture, quite frankly, they're all, um, they're all in decay. They are falling apart. They are being challenged. Even their very definitions are being challenged. There didn't used to be any confusion about what a man was or what manhood was. There is an incredible amount of confusion there are all kinds of books being written. There's all kinds of advice being given. Um, marriage, there's an attempt to redefine marriage. We're watching it before our very eyes. Um, family is being redefined. Everything is being redefined because we are living in interesting times, the times that are described in Psalm 11, verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? There are certain, and if you've been with us in the study, you understand uh, where we are right now in this country and in other countries. I understand in Brazil, you have three people now who want to be married. Why, why would you have a problem with that? Because you see, we've redefined marriage. Marriage can basically be anything. 
anything. You see, when you leave foundational principles, when you leave your, when you leave your anchor, you're in trouble because you have no reference point, you have nothing to hold you in place. Throughout the Old Testament, you'll read the phrase, return to the ancient paths. The ancient paths. Uh, there is no path more ancient than what you find in the book of Genesis. Because the book of Genesis is the book of the beginning. Uh, it's about creation. It's about how God created the world. It's about how God created man. And if you want to know what it means to be a man, you go back to the first man. You read Darwin's Origin of the Species. <laughs> he can't help you. Because he didn't know. He was a broken man with a broken heart because he watched his little girl die and he became embittered towards God. If you've ever read his biography. He had some issues with the goodness of God. Um, The Bible says the first man was Adam, and he was created directly by God. This is all in Genesis 1 and 2. But of course, if you've once again been with us, we, we've acknowledged the fact that for 200 years, the Bible has been attacked. It cannot be trusted. It is not authoritative. It is not the word of God. Um, you especially can't believe Genesis 1, 2, or 3. Yeah, that's got to be myth. It has to be myth. Interestingly enough, when you look at manhood and you, um, you look at foundational principles, and this is a men's Bible study, if you want to talk about manhood, why don't you begin with the perfect man? The perfect man was the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the God-man. Uh, that's very interesting. He was born of a virgin. But he didn't begin to exist when he was born. He has existed from eternity. In the beginning, John 1, 1 was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So he was the perfect man. He's the perfect model of masculinity. If you're confused about masculinity, you look at Jesus and you follow his example. Basically, masculinity is bringing the appropriate trait to the appropriate situation. When you need to be kind, you're kind. When you need to be gentle, you don't lose your temper. When you need to be strong and confrontational, you're strong and confrontational because sometimes a man has to be strong and confrontational. We tend to get things mixed up, though. Jesus never got them mixed up because he was without sin. Not only was he a perfect man, but he was God. And whenever they would ask him, not whenever, but oftentimes they would ask him a question, like they asked him about divorce, and he said, have you not read? And he goes back to Genesis 1, and he goes back to Genesis 2. Have you not read that he created them, male and female? Jesus had no problem with Genesis. No problem whatsoever. The reason Jesus had no problem with Genesis and with Adam and Eve is that he is the one who created Adam and Eve. He is the God-man. He was there. He made the garden. He spoke the worlds into existence. That's either true or it isn't. You can't dice, chop, slice. You can't vegematic Jesus Christ into comfortable compartments. You can't do it. He is the God-man. Fully God, fully man. That's who he is. He had no problem with Genesis because he was there and he did it. 
So when we want to talk about these concepts, these foundational concepts upon which society rests, men, women, marriage, family, where should we go? How about the beginning? Let's go to the beginning. Uh, if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, and then I, what I want to talk about, I want to talk about, um, I want to talk about being a husband. Um, and I don't want to talk about avocado husbandry tonight. Perhaps you have an orchard somewhere of avocados in Southern California somewhere. That's great. But tonight our issue is not crop husbandry or land husbandry or avocado husbandry or uh, I, I came out to walk uh, my retriever, Maggie, early this morning and we've had her on a leash because she's broken her leg and yeah, it's a long story. She fell out of the pickup. I took a corner too fast. True story. Um, and uh, anyway, so I got to keep her on a leash. Because every once in a while, she'll see something she wants to go after, and she's not supposed to do that. And my neighbor next door, he's got, uh, well, every once in a while, he'll bring in some cows for his ag exempt. We come out this morning, we come out that back door, and I look over there, and there's about a 400-pound white sow. And I, I hadn't had my coffee yet. This is a true story. And I kind of did a double take. I mean, that sucker was big. That was big. And, and my dog looked at that and uh, was ready to go over the fence. That was kind of interesting. Um, I'd never seen a, that, that white pig there before. Looked like a pretty rare breed. Uh, his son is a master chef. And I'm kind of thinking. <laughs> It's going to be some pretty good bacon coming out of there, you know, before long. But we're not going to talk about uh, pig husbandry, the breeding and care of pigs. We're going to talk about being a husband. Genesis 2, 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. So here's the first man, and what God did was, God created the world, he created this magnificent garden, and God put him in there to do what? To cultivate it and keep it. God put him in there to husband it. God put him in there to take care of it. If you look at Genesis 1, verse 28, actually 27, God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. God blessed them, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. There's your ordinance to have children and fill the earth. And then he says, and God says, and subdue it. Subdue the earth and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The man was to subdue the earth. He was, he had precedent over the earth. He was to husband the earth. He was to take care of the resources of the earth. He was a steward of it for God. Now he's in the garden. The Lord took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Then we read about 16 and 17, the command in regard 
to the tree of the garden you may eat freely, any of them, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Now note this, then verse 18. Then the Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone. Everything up to this point has been good. Everything is perfect. It's a perfect creation. At the end of every day of creation, God says it's good. Now something's not good. I will make a helper suitable for him. Uh, no one corresponded to him. Uh, men are to be connected. It doesn't mean that every man will be married, but every man has to be in some kind of relationship. Every man. No man is an island. Uh, no man should be a hermit. We are designed to be interconnected. Jesus sent them out two by two. He didn't send them out one by one. There are two things you can't do by yourself. You can't get married by yourself. I mean, <laughs> I mean, at least not yet. I haven't read the paper in a couple hours. You can't live the Christian life by yourself. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some, Hebrews says. Uh, now watch this, verse 19. Watch Adam begin to be a husband. You said, but there's no woman yet. No, he's going to do animal husbandry first. Look at 19. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the sky, brought them to the man to see what he would call them, and whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. He slept, he took one of his ribs, probably the prime rib, closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man, brought her to the man. The man said, and see, you say, come on, you can't really believe that. Jesus believed it. If Jesus believed it, why wouldn't you believe it? Was he mistaken? He wasn't mistaken. He was there. He did this. He pulled it off. All things were created by him. Okay. The man said, this is now bone of my bone. He saw this. He saw this woman. She was dressed to the teeth. No, she wasn't. She was naked. Or as they say in some parts of the South, she was naked. And it was good. And nobody said amen. But God invented this. Then you get the ordinance of marriage in 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife are both naked and not ashamed. The point we've been making for several weeks, um, we made a lot of points. One of them is that marriage is not a contract. Marriage is a covenant. Marriage is, uh, there, there is a covenant between a man and a woman, and when they make that covenant, the two become one. But in order to have a covenant, you have to have two parties, and when the two become one, they're one, so they need another party, and that's God. 
So we make a covenant with Almighty God. God ordained marriage. God owns it. He invented it. God has the copyright on marriage. God has the trademark on marriage. Marriage is important to God. Um, Weddings are easy. Marriage is hard. You know, it used to be. How did you and your wife meet? Kind of interesting. I'm sure everyone has an interesting story. Uh, You know how it used to be? Is that um, you didn't meet your wife when you were in college, or you didn't meet your wife when you were in the military somewhere and went to the USO, or you know you were uh, met her at church somewhere. The way it used to work is that uh, when maybe you were five or six years old, this is how it used to be for thousands of years. Your dad was out in the field, working the field, and. Uh, he saw the guy next door, and he's out working his field, and they wave, and they come over and start talking, and they start chatting. And uh, as they're talking, they say, hey, uh, how old's your little girl now? Well, she's five. Yeah, how old's your boy? He's, yeah, he's six, going to be seven here old soon. And they start talking about their kids. And these dads start uh, pondering this, and the dads decide, you know what, when these kids hit 18, let's have uh, my boy marry your girl. That's how it was. You see, marriage was considered too important a decision to be left to young people. Have you ever heard of an arranged marriage? Maybe your great-grandparents had an arranged marriage. I remember, uh, I think it was Don Sanukian, who talked about his grandparents who had a farm in Central California. And he would visit them when he was a little boy. And it and in the summers, it would cool down in the San Joaquin Valley. And uh, after dinner, his grandpa had these gnarled arthritic hands, and he would reach for his wife's gnarled arthritic hands, and they were both in their 80s. And uh, he would take her chair back and then grab her hand, and then they would go walk around the farm together and just talk. They'd been married like 65 years. He was shocked later when he found out that as they married as teenagers, they couldn't stand the sight of each other. She did not want to marry that boy. And he wasn't that hot on marrying her. But they had nothing to say about it. The fathers arranged the marriage and they got married. See, he always thought their They were so much in love, and they were. But it didn't start that way. You say, my gosh, what an outmoded, crazy idea. Arrange marriages. Yeah. Well, look how we're doing. (laughs) We don't have arranged marriages. We got deranged marriages. You see? And we're redefining marriage. And if you're not happy, you leave, and you split. They didn't have that option. But what happened was they grew, and they had made a commitment, and they had burned their ships, and there was no escape. The great story of Cortez took his men. They're going up Veracruz, up the cliffs. Don't know what's awaiting them. They look in the harbor. All the ships are on fire. Cortez burned the ships. There's no means of escape. Now they're highly motivated to make this work. 
That's how you make a marriage work. But it takes both parties being highly motivated. You see. We've made the point, we've made the point that just as God put Adam in a garden, he takes every man and puts him on some real estate. You may not have a garden, but you live somewhere. And there were boundaries to the garden, and there are boundaries to the sphere in which you live your life. I've said this before. I want to say it again, because I think we've got to hammer this into our thinking. We, we have boundaries. We have physical boundaries. We have physical and geographical boundaries. And within those boundaries, that is our turf. That is our garden. And as men, we have been given a responsibility. We are to work. We are to provide for our families. We are to protect our families. We are to pray for our families. We are to give leadership to our families spiritually. You say, Steve, I don't know how to do that. Well, if your dad didn't show you, how would you know? Yeah, I've never prayed with my wife. Man, I don't think I could do that. You could do it. Man, that freaks me out. Well, anything freaks you out the first time. You see? Well, I'm not sure how to, let me tell you how to do it. You just take her hand. You got an issue. You're talking about something and you're not sure. And you know you're thinking about it. And she says, I'm concerned about this. Just grab her hand. Just grab her hand and say, Jesus, we need your wisdom on this. Would you help us? We're not sure what to do. We ask you to help us in Jesus' name. Amen. You've just spiritually led your wife. That's it. Well, man, that's kind of scary. Yeah, it is, because you haven't done it before. But give it a shot. You can do that. Just talk to the Lord from your heart. I love that story Howard Hendrick used to pray, used to tell about this guy from the neighborhood that came to a, a Bible study that he had for people in the neighborhood. None of them knew Christ. But they kept coming back and, you know, and then this one guy, Bill, you, you know, they had a little prayer time and, 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 and Bill said to Dr. Hendricks, he said, you know, I'm thinking maybe I could pray tonight. And he said, well, sure, go ahead. And so they bowed their heads and Bill says, Lord, this is Bill. <laughs> he didn't know. I mean, usually, I mean, you know, he, he wanted the Lord to know who he was. This is Bill. That's pretty neat, isn't it? He was just talking to the Lord. That's prayer. That's leadership. He's grab her hand, and Lord, we're not sure. We're not sure what our daughter's doing, and we're just confused, and we don't even know where she is right now. Lord, would you, would you protect her? And, 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 and just tell him, and then say amen. You just led. You see? So you've got your turf. You got your wife, you got your kids, you may have grandkids, you have your work, you have your church. Where do your kids play baseball? So yeah, they play baseball in Richardson. We go to church here. We live in uh, Carrollton. All right, those are kind of your boundaries. Okay, that's your turf. In your turf, as in Adam's garden, there were people and there was work. Turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And then we're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, because sin came into the world in Genesis chapter 3, we needed a Savior. And that's why Jesus came, because they disobeyed God, and the man listened to his wife, who was tempted by the enemy, and sin came into the world, and so now they had to leave the garden, and things were broken, 
and there was going to be death, and there was going to be physical death. And as the years go by, see, they were meant to live eternally, and you have the patriarchs in the Old Testament who would live hundreds and hundreds of years, and then as time went by, that diminished so that now, what, the lifespan, Psalm 90, is for the days of our lives, they contain 70 or if due to strength, 80 years. Soon it is gone and we fly away, you see. So when sin came in, death came with it. So we needed a Savior. So Christ came, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died for our sins, was buried, rose on the third day. That's the gospel. So what's happened is marriage is still in effect, but marriage always is conducted. Whenever you have a wedding, you've got two sinful people. And this makes it very interesting, and it makes it very challenging. And so we have guys here in different places. We have guys here who have been married. We have guys who have been married once, some guys twice, some guys three, sometimes some guys more than that. That's where you are. Man, I wish I had heard this 20 years ago. Yeah, but you didn't. Yeah, well, I just came to know the Lord on such and such. Okay, you came to know him. Say, old things have passed away, old things have become new. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. So see, now you're spiritually alive, and now your eyes have been opened, and now you're ready to look at the book and the manual, and what you didn't do before, and now he's opened your eyes, and you want to walk with wisdom. Um, some of you are in good marriages. Some of you are in really bad marriages. Uh, some of you were married. You're no longer married. See, this is all because of the result of sin. People get busted up because of sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul addresses the issue of marriage, and he addresses the issue of our spheres, our spheres, okay? Um, this, this to me is just wild stuff. It, it helps me to understand, um, how, how, come, how come you don't live in Toronto? How come you live here? How, how come you don't live in Argentina? How come you live here in the Dallas area? How come? Well, because, and, and, and you know, this is a broad area. There's a lot of people around here. Yeah, but where do you live? Oh, McKinney. I live in Frisco. I live in Plano. You know, I live in Louisville. I live, okay. You live somewhere, you got some real estate. That's where you live. And you work somewhere. See, the, you got to get this turf thing in your head. These are the boundaries, the physical boundaries. And within those physical boundaries, you are to husband. You are to husband. You are to take care of those in your charge. You're, you, you've got a job. You're to take care of business. You're to husband your work. You're to work well to the glory of God. To husband is to take care. To husband is not to take. A lot of husbands just take. That's a lousy husband. If you're in it for you, it's going to fail. Right? If she's in it for her, it's going to fail. To husband is to take care. To husband is not to take advantage. If you take advantage, it's not going to work. 
We make things, if she takes advantage, it's not going to work. But we each have been called to a certain station. We've been called to a certain place. We've been called to a certain sphere. Now, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17. And he's talking in the context of marriage. 17. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. My life isn't like your life. Your life isn't like the guy next to you. We have some things in common, but we have some things that are separate. But we have responsibilities and we have a stewardship. Am I making any sense? This is basic stuff. This is family 101. The most basic principles of family 101 is, number one, every family needs provision, and number two, every family needs care. They not get any more basic than that. And what is a family? It's a male and female. Both made in the image of God. Both equal access. Both have value to God. He is not better than she is. She is not better than he is. They're both made in the image of God. Genesis 1.27. So you got a male and a female. Both, two eyes, two ears. A nose, a mouth, two hands, two legs, two feet. They're identical except for the plumbing. Right? You've got to have different plumbing to fulfill the ordinance of having children. They complement each other. What are the two basic needs of a family? Provision and care. When they, were, when they sinned in Genesis 3, the man was, was cursed in his area of primary responsibility, which was provision. Now he, was, he had to work, but now he was going to be cursed with thorns and thistles. The wife was going to be cursed in childbearing. You have breasts. Your wife has breasts. I don't know if you've noticed this. They're different. They're quite a bit different. She can breastfeed. You can't. You see. It's a compliment. When push comes to shove, the man's the provider. She is the nurturer. It's not real popular just happens to be true. Only as the Lord has assigned to each of you, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. Now, I'm not going to read all of this. Look at verse 20. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. This gets really interesting. Were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. What? Are you putting me on? Because, see, we're all about rights. Well, I mean, we are big time in the rights. We want rights that don't even exist, let alone God-given rights. Okay? Look at what he says. And you know, a lot of people in the Roman Empire were slaves. You had more slaves than you had free people in the Roman Empire. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, do that. If you can legitimately change your condition, legitimately, then change it. But don't illegitimately change it. Look at verse 22. Well, why not? He who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's free man. He who was called while free is Christ's slave. You're a slave either way. You see, you're under somebody's authority. God often uses difficult circumstances which we don't want to mature us and grow us. 
It doesn't mean we'll always be there, but it means if you're there and you can't legitimately change your circumstances, you say, I really don't like my work right now. Understandable. We've all been there. That's no fun. Man, it's drudgery. I hate it. This boss is all over me. Okay, that's where you are. That's where God has you. Are you just going to bolt and not work and just say, I can't? You, you got to listen. You remain at your post. You stay at your post and you learn the lessons. And there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's a trial. You probably won't always be there, but you're there now. We all have circumstances we wish we could get out of. I, I, in one of the other studies I do, there's a gentleman in that study who has had 900 surgeries. Not 90, 900 surgeries for cancer, skin cancer, since he was 19. Would he like out of that? Yeah. Yeah. It's at 900. He knows he's got more coming. We all have things we wish we could get out of. But if God is sovereign, he has you there. You're called there. Stay at your post. Learn the lessons. Keep a teachable spirit. Okay. 24. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. 27. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. You go, wait a minute. Let me, let me try to explain this. God doesn't like divorce. Divorce is not a good thing. In Matthew 19, 9, Jesus said, there is to be no divorce among you except for fornication, except for pornea. Um, Sometimes a mate will be unfaithful and will be sexually involved with somebody else. They become one with that person. Paul says, if you have intercourse with a harlot, you become one with her. It's serious stuff. Our culture just laughs at it, says it's no big deal. It's huge. Uh, Jesus said, there's to be no divorce except for that. It doesn't mean you have to take the option, but he granted the option. Now, I've seen that happen in, in, in married couples where there has been unfaithfulness, and God can do and has done miraculous works, and they're restored. You've got guys in here who've had that happen to them, or they did it, and were unfaithful to their wives, and, and that marriage has been restored amazingly, and now they're ministering to others. You see? What do you do in a situation where it's continual and it happens again and again and again and there's false repentance? Well, that's a serious matter. And you seek counsel. But generally speaking, marriage is so important to God. See, we're in a stage where any whim, any just, oh, I'm not happy, you can get out. That's not pleasing to God. You see. Well, if there's unfaithfulness and it's been going, how do I know what to do? Well, you read the end of Romans 14. If, if you can't make a decision in good conscience, see, if you can't do something with a clear conscience to you, it's sin. You've you got to get wise counsel. You've got to talk to folks. You've got to say, Lord, what are you doing? You've got to seek him. But, but I'm saying, generally speaking, God wants husbands and wives together. Okay? Yeah, but 
she's not a believer. He talks about if you have a wife who's not a believer. He's got all kinds of situations here. Um, but my point is, we are each called to a sphere, and the sphere is not perfect. We have our stuff. Sometimes, listen, I don't care. I don't care. Someone asked Ruth Graham one time, because apparently Billy Graham and Ruth Graham were on opposite ends of the spectrum, personality. And you know, you get married young, and then you start getting older, and people change. Have you noticed this? People change. And you think, you know, she wasn't that way when I married her. Well, she probably wasn't. You weren't this way when she married you. Someone asked Ruth Graham, have you ever, ever thought of divorce? She said, no. Murder? <laughs> Sometimes you want to kill them. Forget loving them, you don't even like them. Now, this, I've never had this experience. I've read of it in the lives of others. Mary has never experienced this. She's read biographies. Um, I haven't sinned in 12 years. <laughs> you know the story of the lady who went up to Spurgeon, said, Mr. Spurgeon, I haven't sinned in 12 years. He said, oh, you must be very proud. She said, I am. <laughs> she never got it. You just pat him on the shoulder, God bless you. Hey, we're all messed up, are we not? Yeah, your, per your turf isn't perfect, but you've got a wife. She's not perfect, you're not perfect. Okay, but you've got turf. And, and God wants marriages together because when marriages break up, there are... I was going to say ripple. It's more than ripples. There are aftershocks. And, and they can go on for generations. Judith Wallerstein has tracked people whose parents, since the, since the 60s, who were, uh, when they were kids, their parents divorced, she has tracked them. Many of them are still dealing with it 40 and 50 years later, the divorce of their parents. You see? Um, turn with me to 1 Peter 3. We want to zero in now on our responsibility as husbands, not, not to husband our land or to husband our crops, but to husband our wives, okay? You, you know, he, he said back there, basically, where you are, be content. With, with where you are. I was, um, what, what, what was the verse? He said in 27, are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. It's interesting. Because some of you guys, and I talked last week about single guys, that when I was a single guy, I was, I was looking for a wife. I think that's a good thing. He who finds a, a wife finds a good thing. Uh, because you've got a woman now in your life and you're compatible and you go through life together. And it's hard being alone. But 
at the same time that those desires that we have, say a desire to be married, you really have to leave that in the Lord's hands. Now, it's the old thing, you know, you trust God and keep your powder dry. I mean, it's, it's not that you're not open, but it doesn't become the driving force. You don't get, you don't get obsessive about it, but you got your eyes open. Um, the Lord knows our hearts, and our lives are in his hands. Um, I was reading about Jim Elliott. Uh, he and his four friends, the missionaries to the Aka Indians, were martyred. He'd been married 24 months. He had a 10-year-old, a 10-month-old daughter. He married Elizabeth Howard. And she was at the shortwave radio and heard that her husband and his four friends had been speared to death. And here she is living in the mountains of Ecuador with a little 10-month-old girl. Hmm. Um... I was reading about Addison Leach, who was a a tremendous theologian. He he died in the 60s. But um, later in life, he met a young woman, younger, almost 20 years younger, and he married her. He never saw it coming. God just brought her into his life. Uh, Her name was Elizabeth Elliot. And somehow in the providence of God, God took Elizabeth Elliot from the jungles of Ecuador and she actually brought two Aka women to live with her and her daughter. And then she actually went back with the Aka women and lived in the village with the families, including the men who had killed her husband. And they were all led to Christ. And years later, she somehow wound up in Boston And she wrote Christian books and was at this library, at this seminary, and somehow met this gentleman, Addison Leach, and they were married. And it was an answer to prayer because her little girl knew her daddy was in heaven, but she wanted a daddy. And this guy, Addison Leach, was just an answer to prayer for both of them. And then he got cancer, and four years later, he died. How tough is that? I was reading about a gentleman named Lars Grin, G-R-E-N. And he'd been in business all his life, had been very successful. Got into his 60s, decided to sell the business, and he had an interest to study the Word of God. And uh, he goes to seminary. And he... They put him in a dorm room. He's 65 years old, living with these 22-year-old guys in the dorm. He can't get any sleep. They're crazy. And he talked to the dean, and he said, you know, there's a lady that has two rooms available to board. Why don't you go talk to Mrs. Leach? And he did. And she invited him to board. There was a young man who was also looking for a place, he went and talked and took the second room. One guy in his 20s, one man in his 60s. They both finished their educations, moved away. Two years later, the young man married Elizabeth Howard Elliot Leach's daughter. 
Four years later, Lawrence Grin, after corresponding with Elizabeth, married her, and they're married to this day. Is that not fascinating? Elizabeth Elliot has been widowed three, she's been married three times and widowed twice, and half of her life was spent as a single. What a fascinating story. You never know what God's going to do, do you? You just don't know. Uh, let's go to First Peter. Okay. I love it that God used Peter to talk about marriage. I do. I love that. First Peter 3 is all about marriage. It's about the turf of marriage. It's about the real estate of marriage. And in 1 Peter 3, in verses 1 through 6, Peter gives instruction to wives. Now, this is a men's study. We don't have any women here. But may I say something to you? If you are married to a wife who loves Christ first and is seeking to follow Christ and seeking to obey the word of God, if you're married to a woman who is seeking to obey the scriptures, including 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 6, you got a good deal. You're a blessed man. Because she loves Christ and you love Christ, and you're both rowing the boat in the same direction. Some of you guys have wives that are not rowing the boat in the same direction. They are not on board. They are not following Christ as you are. They may give some lip service, but their heart is not there. That's hard. It's much easier when you're both going in the same direction but when you're following Christ and she isn't, you have a much harder lot in life. It's difficult. It's immensely difficult. And I don't want to minimize that in any way, shape, or form. But you still, but you see, you still have your stewardship as a husband before God, and you still have a responsibility. Whether she's on board or not on board, you still have a responsibility to the best of your ability to take care, to husband. So in 1 Peter 3, 7, Peter says this. He says, you husbands, likewise. And then he's going to give us two instructions. Um, I, I'm glad he doesn't give us 27 things. I couldn't remember 27 things. He gives us two things as husbands. And this doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you've been married four months or 47 years. These are instructions to all of us as husbands. Um, I want to say one other word. If your wife is not in the same following Christ in the same way that you are, there is great frustration. And you wish that it were different. And there's not a lot of joy. It, it can be drudgery and 
it's just hard. If she's contentious, it's doubly hard, as it's hard for a woman to live with a difficult man, you see. Proverbs says that a nagging woman is like a dripping faucet. That's no fun. You've got issues, she's got issues. In 1 Peter 3, 7, he gives us two instructions. Now, I want to say this. He says, you husbands likewise. Peter was married. I love it that God used Peter to write about marriage because I don't think Peter, as a young man, was the model of the Christian husband. Do you? Because what we know is Peter is a young man. What, give me some of Peter's personality traits. Just give me a few. Throw them out. I mean, there's no, I'm not going to. Hot-tempered. Impetuous. Impulsive. Peter. What else did we hear? Strong-willed. Ooh, see, you getting the idea here? Strong-willed, impetuous, hot-tempered. Whoa. What woman wouldn't want that? The guy's a walking explosive. And you never know when he's going to blow. He is not predictable. He is not stable. You don't know if he's in a mood swing or you don't know. You don't know where the sucker is. You don't know what he's going to do. So when you've got a guy that's impulsive, impetuous, hot-tempered, uh, what did you say, Brian? Strong-willed. Strong you better walk on eggshells. Everybody walks around the house with a helmet. Everybody's got Kevlar on. Because you never know when the guy's going to blow. See, that's how Peter was as a young man. They came to get Jesus in the garden. Who grabbed the sword and cut that sucker's ear off? Peter. That's Peter. Impulsive, hot-tempered. Lord, I'll never deny you. Jesus said, you're all going to fall away. I'm not going to fall away. I'll never deny you. Well, let me tell you something, Peter. Before that cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. He was out by the campfire warming his hand. This little girl comes up. Weren't you with him? I wasn't with him. Three times. And then he looked up and Jesus was looking at him. And he went out and wept bitterly. Every one of us can relate to that. Peter had foot in mouth disease. He was always putting his foot in his mouth. He was always engaging his mouth before he engaged his brain. How many times have we done that? See, this is why we all relate to Peter. But you know what I love about Peter? Peter wrote this towards the end of his life, and Peter changed. Men can change, and men can mature, and men can grow up, and immature men can become mature men, and irritable men can become patient men. And hot-tempered men can become self-controlled men. It's not easy. It's very hard and it's very difficult. It's a slow process. But it can happen. Is it not possible that as you get older, you don't don't have to be a crank? And you don't have to be a pain to be around at Christmas time and Thanksgiving? But you could become sweeter and nicer? Is it, wouldn't that be a concept? Huh? And then instead of not being around you, they want to be around you and they want to talk to you. 
hey, Grandpa, tell me, tell me, tell me stories about when you were a little kid. See, they want to know you. They want to talk to you. But if you're just a crank and the pain in the rear end, they don't want to talk to you. So ask the Lord to help you. You don't want that in your life, do you? You know what I love about Peter? Peter didn't just grow old in Christ. Peter grew up in Christ. He wrote, Peter, he wrote this towards the end of his life. He was an older man. So you've got two options. You can grow old in Christ. How do you grow old in Christ? You just get up every day. But you don't change and you don't mature. But to grow up in Christ, you have a teachable spirit and you learn from your errors and you learn from your mistakes. And when your friends say something to you, you listen to them. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And when your wife has constructive criticism, not nagging, but constructive criticism given to you in a right way, you're man enough to take it and listen to it. And then when your kids get old enough and they see something and they talk to you and they love you, you got to be man enough to listen to that. And don't pull rank on them. Demonstrate a teachable spirit. Well, I want my wife to be submissive. Why don't you model that for her? The greatest leaders are great submitters. Yeah, the husband has authority over the wife, but the best leaders are great submitters to authority. Model it. Don't write her, you need to be more submissive. Why don't you show her how to do that by the power of your example in your life? See, that's a leader. It's hard, so we work at it. He didn't grow old in Christ, he grew up in Christ. I think Peter had to learn this the hard way. Here's the first thing he says, you husbands likewise. On your turf, in your garden, in your marriage, here's the first thing he says, live with her in an understanding way. Could he have said anything more difficult? I'm dead serious. Why is it so hard to live with a wife in an understanding way? Because she's so different. He says, live with your wife in an understanding way since she is a weaker vessel. She is a weaker vessel. You can be the same height and the same weight as your wife. You have 40% more muscle mass. Every 28 days, she goes through a cycle. You have never been through that cycle. You never want to go through that cycle. And in the goodness of God, you will never have to go through it. But she goes through it, and sometimes there are swings. There, there are swings, and she's not even sure why she's responding the way that she is responding. There is menopause, and you're going to go through it. And the young guys say, I'm not going through that. You're going through it. She's going. She's taking you with her. <laughs> Just buckle up. It's a real interesting phase of life. And so what, what does a woman need in those situations? She needs a man to live with her in an understanding way. I, I, I'm not saying this is easy. I'm saying this is incredibly hard. But the longer that we are on the earth, we should be maturing, and we, certain things that we reacted to, we should, we should, we should, you become a student of her. There are certain things that push your wife's button. I have a friend, and I admire him as much as I admire anybody in the world. His walk with Christ, the way he has overseen his family and conducted his life, he's a leader of leaders. He's in a very difficult marriage with a woman who loves Christ. He told me one time, Steve, the best, on my best day, the best I can ever do is get to zero. 
I've never been in the plus column. Minus 10 to plus 10, I've never been a minus one in 40 years of marriage, let alone, uh, I've never been a plus one, I've never been a plus five. The best I can do with her is get to zero. But he understands why. Her father was a pastor who sexually abused her regularly from the time she was eight years old. Does it make sense that she would have trouble trusting a man, even a good man? Yeah. And see, what he's doing is he is, he is paying the consequences for the works of an ungodly man. And it's being taken out on him. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He, he has been crucified, quite frankly, by her at times. He has been uh, tortured by her at times. She doesn't mean to do it. But you see, uh, it's not fun, it's not painful, but he takes a step back and he understands why she is the way that she is. Now, what are the issues in your wife's life? What does she need? She needs understanding. Don't you need understanding? Yeah. Isn't it, isn't it horrible to be misunderstood? Yeah. So then we ask the Lord to help us now. We're not going to get it perfect, but Lord, help me to live with her in an understanding way. He goes on later in a few verses and says, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For let him who longs to see good days refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. You see, when you get into this back and forth thing, that's not, that's not what you want. Someone's got to take a step back. So you attempt to live with her in an understanding way. Here's a, and this is hard. Here's the second thing. And grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. The idea there comes from the athletic competitions. This is wild. Back in the days of the New Testament, they would have these athletic competitions, track and field. And you know what they would do? They would take the top three finishers and put them on pedestals and give them medals. Oh gosh, we do that today. That's what it means to grant her honor. The husband sets the atmosphere in the home. The atmosphere in a home can either be constructive or destructive, and the man sets it. If the atmosphere is destructive, People are, t are torn down by your words. The home in which you were raised, was it destructive? Were people torn down? Or the home in which you were raised, were people built up? If they were built up, if your dad built people up, then it was constructive. He was constructing relationships. That's a good thing, isn't it? It's a good thing. Our home, homes as Christian men ought to be safe. They ought to be secure. They ought to be encouraging. They ought to be full of love. They ought to be full of discipline. People are not ripped apart, but they're built up. They're loved and they're embraced. And we're the guys that set the pace. Grant her honor. When my kids are small, every once in a while at dinner time, every once in a while, I'd say, so Josh, or John, or Rachel. I just pick one. 
How'd your day go? Good, Dad. Good. How was school? Good. How were those clothes you washed for school? How'd they turn out? I didn't wash my clothes, Dad. You didn't wash your clothes. Who washed your clothes? Mom. Oh, Mom washed your clothes. Oh, okay, Dad. We're going to honor Mom now, right? Yeah, you got it. <laughs> give me three other things. Give me three other things your mom did for you today. And Mary's over there in the kitchen getting everything ready. And, you know, she's a very smart woman, very educated woman. What has she done all day? Run kids around? Change some diapers? Gone to Costco? Give them a credit card? Give us your work number? Oh, I don't work. What do you do all day? Like, what's wrong with you? I told Mary at a certain point, I said, hey, if they say, when they ask for a work number and you say you don't work outside the home, and they kind of give you that demeaning look, well, what do you do all day? You tell them, I said, Mary, just tell them next time, just say, I'm raising leaders for the next generation. What kind of work do you do? Because that's what she's doing. She's discipling those kids. Now, not every mom can stay at home. You see? But she was becoming a servant. G.K. Chesterton said, why is it an honorable profession to teach someone else's children but not teach your own? Jesus said, if you're going to be great in the kingdom, you must become the servant of all. There's no greater model of servanthood than a mother with her children who lays aside her rights and her privileges and what's best for her and takes care and sacrifices for them. So honor that. Honor that. Put her up on a pedestal and grant her honor verbally and respect her and demand respect. I'll close with this story. You remember double days in football? You'd practice in the morning and then you go back at practice at night. It's summertime, it's hot as blazes. About the second or third day, I came back. Um, I, I, I was so sore. You know that second or third day, you can hardly move after full contact. And I had this little Volkswagen, this 64 Volkswagen, and I, I could hardly get in it, and I drove home, and I was coming, I could hardly get out of the Volkswagen, and then I'm walking up the three or four steps to the door, and my mom, I just, I wasn't even gonna eat lunch, because I, I had to go back at three. I was just gonna lay down and not move. And my mom opened the door, I was walking in, and she said, Steve, I'm so glad you're here. I have ladies coming over, I need you to clean out the garage. Now that still doesn't make sense to me. I mean, it just, it didn't add up then, it doesn't add up now, but it didn't matter. Because for some reason, and they weren't gonna eat in the garage, but for some reason, my mom wanted that garage cleaned. And I said, Mom, I said, and I, I tell you, I was, I could hardly get up the steps, if you remember those days. I said, Mom, Mom, I'm telling you, I am so sore I can hardly move. Could you just let me just go in there and lay down for a few minutes? She goes, no, I need you to do it now. I said, Mom, I'm telling you, I'm dying here. And she said, Stephen, you get in there and do that garage. Well, that year I'd grown nine inches in 12 months. And I used to be shorter than she was, and now I was taller. I was on the same step, and I looked at her, and I said, Mom, I'm not going to do that right now. I'll do it in maybe 30 minutes or 45 minutes, but I'm, I'm not going to do it. And I walked in, and I was on the family room, and I just stretched out on that floor. 
And I don't know, maybe 20 minutes later, I heard a strange sound. I heard my dad's car pull into the driveway. And I had never heard that at that time of the day before. And we weren't Catholic, but I began to cross myself. <laughs> I began to do all kinds of religious exercises because I knew I was in deep yogurt. And I'm going to tell you something. I, I got off that floor like a missile. And my dad walked in, and I was waiting for him, and he said, have a seat. And I sat down on that couch. And my dad sat down, and he looked at me, and he said, you know, Steve, I want you to have a happy life. But if you ever talk to your mother like that again, I will pull you off that football team so fast it'll make your head spin. Now, my dad had enough integrity capital built up that I knew he'd do it. My dad loved sports, but he loved me more than sports. My dad was all state in football and basketball. He went to college on a full basketball ride. Was offered a contract to play for the Steelers, turned it down. You can't support a family playing professional football. <laughs> Not in 46, you couldn't. My dad loved sports. He loved me more than sports. He said, I'll pull you off that football team so fast, and I knew he'd do it. He said, you will never speak to her that way again. Is that clear? And I said, yes, sir, it is. And then he went on for another 15, 20 minutes. We took an offering. <laughs> Had an invitation. Now let me fast forward it. Uh, wasn't living in the Bay Area, I was living in Coppell. And my son, John, was in uh, high school. And he'd grown about eight, nine inches in 12 months. And when I would go off on a weekend trip, there would be problems. And this happened two or three times. And I was getting ready to go on a trip, and I said, John, let me tell you something. It seems like the last two times I've been gone, you're not obeying mom, and I need you to obey mom. I don't want to hear about this when I get back. So I fly in from San Jose or something. I get in the airport about 11.30 at night. I come home. Everybody's in bed. Mary's in bed. She's reading. I walk in, and I said, how did it go with John? And before she said a word, I knew, because I could read her face. I said, what happened? And she told me he'd mouthed off to her again, been disobedient. I said, OK, got the information. I walked into the bedroom because I knew he wasn't sleeping. I used to be 15. I tapped him. I said, come here. We walked into my study. We sat down. And I looked at him. I said, you know, John, I want you to have a happy life. <laughs> this is a true story. But I'm going to tell you something. If this happens again, I'll pull you off that basketball team so fast it'll make your head spin. And if you think I'm kidding, you try me. I don't talk to your mother like that, and you will never again speak to her with those words or with that attitude. Is that clear? Yes, sir. And it was all I could do to keep from cracking up. 
Now, it's funny, in about 15 more years, John will pull his kid out of bed, <laughs> sit him on the couch. It's a family tradition. <laughs> you see, my dad demanded that I honor my mom and that I respect her. And he said to me that night that it was not an option. See, I told you a story last week because there was, a, there was a, a situation where he didn't do it and I called him on it because he had taught me that's what you do. You see, and he took it. Live with her in an understanding way. Grant her honor. And this is such a big deal of God. He ends by saying, so that your prayers may not be hindered. That's how big of a deal it is to the Lord. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I go home, I need to apologize and I need to ask for forgiveness. Not always, but sometimes. And if that's the case, get it right. Take care of your sphere. Lead by example. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for mercy and grace. Marriage is hard. We all want our own way. We all have our own perspective. We all have blind spots. We have flaws that we don't even see. Help us. We just simply ask you to help us. May there be a spirit of grace and forgiveness just as we have been forgiven. May we be quick to forgive. May we not remember slights or faults or insults and keep a list. May we throw those out just like you've thrown them out for us. Help us to go home and do the work that we need to do. As much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And that would certainly include our wives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.